Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Mara Carabello, president of the Exoro Group, Glenn Mills, anchor and reporter with ABC4 News, and Lindsay Ertz, reporter with KSL News Radio. We're done with week three of the legislative session. So much has happened. We're gonna to get to some of the big bills tonight. I wanna to start with a strategy question first though with you, Mara. Uh, some of our legislators, leaders in particular, the, at the top, the president speaker said, they're gonna to get to some of the more, more controversial bills at the beginning of the session, and right. they did. Talk about that strategy and what that means for what we're gonna see for the rest of the session. That they did. We have not ever seen such a fast start on such big, Issues yeah. now. There was a buildup. If you you were insider watching for two three weeks prior, they sort of telecast that these yeah. were going to go out front. I think it was the bride product of what you said. You have two seasoned leaders in the House and Senate. It was clearly orchestrated. I mean, it was clearly deliberate, and they came out. I think their notion, the strategic notion, is get rid of some of the controversy uh, right at the top. The, the normal course is you sort of build almost to some controversial, mm -hmm. particularly social issues, um, and you saw that in two big controversial kid-related bills right on the first week. I think for many watchers, we would say from a textbook, it was really smart legislative strategy. I think if you were an advocate or a member of the public, you felt a little left behind. And there's still, there's still a question about did they achieve their goal in getting these things out of the way early so that they, they then could turn the attention to other uh, policy? Did it work? This, right? Yeah, did it work? Because they're still hearing about it, you know, yes. a week later yeah. after these bills were signed. We saw this to a very small extent last year with the mask mandate ban. I think legislators and particularly leadership got a feel for what that was like last year when they did that. And then they looked at this strategy more into the year. And, and as you mentioned, you know, they let us know this was going to happen. We knew it was coming. But even though we knew it was coming, you sit and watch it and you're still like, Wow, yeah. this is this yeah. is happening. Yeah, Lindsay, these were some big bills. You had things on the scholarship bill on public education, the, the issues uh, for transgender uh, students as well. Uh, what do you think that means? for us for the rest of the session. Are the big controversial things done or well, we still have some more to come? Yeah, tomorrow's point, they've got some of them out of the way and now they might tighten up some of those bills, yeah. right? Adding some language to the school choice, school voucher bill uh, to make sure that certain um, groups aren't left behind, to make sure that they button up accountability on the school choice piece. You know, in my conversations with some of the, um, at least Senate leadership, they sort of argue that this has been a long time coming. Like Mara was saying, you know, this happened in interim, at least with the transgender related bill. Um, they discussed it in an interim meeting and then they've been working on it for months. Uh, Senator Kennedy's bill banning transgender uh, surgeries for minors has been run several times in the past. So they argue that they have really been working on this for years and years. But to Glenn's point as well, I think the public felt and what we were hearing in the media was they rushed this through they stuffed it down our throats for back for lack of a better word and the public did feel a little bit left behind I, I will point out 
to their credit, for the most part, they did go by process. We saw rules uh, suspended for HB 215 in the House. A lot of people argue there was no reason to do that in the first week. But other than that, they went through the hearings. They just knew this was the strategy up mm -hmm. front. And I'll, I'm going to say this as well. I wouldn't rule out more to come. We all know what happened in the midnight hour last year. There are some other very controversial topics that are being talked about at the surface that could still pop up before the end of the, the session. The other thing we are all starting to watch is in the middle of the session towards the end you just tip to money. So it becomes yeah. all about appropriation and appropriation often has some hidden surprises. In that's it. absolutely true and that's what's happening this week and the beginning of next week are all these appropriation requests and there are a lot of them. Uh, but this may have opened up the window for some fairly consequential legislation. I want to start with you because it was identified this week was identified as water week. Water week, water week by our legislators. Yes. Uh, I want to I want to go to you but first I'm just going to tee this up with a question from one of our students okay. that's watching this closely from the University of Utah. Let's play this this uh, this clip and then tell us your thoughts about these questions. Hi, I'm Teresa Maloney. I'm an anthropology major at the University of Utah and also student ambassador at the Hinckley. The question that I want to ask this week is about water policy in Utah. I know you guys had some really great people on talking about the Great Salt Lake a few weeks ago, and I'm just wondering what kind of policy is being proposed this year in this legislative session, and what kind of things can Utahns expect? I know that we have meter proposals and different things happening where I live in Davis County, but I'm wondering what else I can update my family on, and kind of what we can expect over the next few years as this water crisis gets worse. Thank you. So what I'll first say is that the legislators have heard loud and clear and agree that water is the biggest issue facing mm -hmm. Utah right now. The other thing that you hear, but I think it's more than a mantra, is Utah's not one size fits all. Although we're the second arid state, those of us who you know live on the West Edge Front have a very different climate than those who live in St. George. And so I just put that caveat in because while I want the legislature to solve some of the problems, I frankly don't know that I want them to solve all of them. But some big things we're seeing are some more aggressive conservation, I'm not going to call them mandates, but sort of clarity on what's acceptable and transparency on who's using what. I think yeah. that's really important because if you can't measure it, you can't change it. I also think a really big philosophical issue is finally tying land use planning. Right. So think about subdivisions, think about businesses, and having it now considered as water being a more important part of that calculation for cities and councils and states. Uh, we're also seeing more money put into it. She had mentioned um, the uh, secondary meters, mm -hmm. particularly in her neck of the woods, northern Utah. It's very different. They don't have as much storage. So we're really being aggressive about metering the water up there. And we're going to start to see rates and fee changes. There's been a lot of pressure. Here's what I think the public should pay attention to is what are they willing to do um, and how much are they really willing to pay? Uh, we've paid a lot of attention to the Great Salt Lake as we should. Um, one of the things I hope to see from the Great Salt Lake is more data. Uh, as issues get big in the public, more people get interested in it. And if the data, if the actual data does not follow the opinion, I think that's when policy gets off. I'd also maybe like to point out a couple of things that didn't make it through the legislature that maybe the public wanted to see. One was Senator Nate Bluen's resolution to put a, a target elevation level for the lake, and he argued that that would give us sort of a goal. It didn't get out of a committee, and I think the pushback to that was that's not really addressing a holistic approach, sort of the, the broader needs of the lake. 
when it comes to conservation, when it comes to those ag needs, the land needs in the area. The other thing that didn't pass was the golf course bill that would have required golf courses mm -hmm. um, publish how much water they use on their websites. And uh, reports came out that that was due to a golf industry lobby who was really instrumental in um, in not in helping that not get through, but I think those are some of the the simple things that maybe the public wanted to see. Like with with the target elevation, it's like okay, well, not a lot of water is actually flowing into the lake, so let's just set an elevation level so we can know that it is indeed. Um, increasing and, and granted there are fluctuations with the lake and all of that so I recognize that but I just think those are some of the things the public wanted to see that maybe the legislature just didn't and, want to support. <laughs> and another sign when we're talking about water bills and how serious this is being taken is when you take a look at who's speaking out on it and how they're in unison. You heard the governor mention it in his state of the state he said we are going to fill this lake if that's what it takes. The Senate president the Speaker of the House, both individually running bills. The Speaker ran a bill last year. He's following up with that. His is focused on who is accountable for this? Who is the authority that we are going to turn to to make sure all of these things that are being passed are being done right and that they are effective? So that's what the Speaker is working on. But you take a look, and this has the attention at the very top levels. And that yeah. shows us how serious this I is being I think that's taken. an important issue. We're not seeing a huge partisan divide, right. by and large, yeah. about trying to solve some issues. Well, Mar but to that point also, it, it is true, but when you have the Speaker of the House, Brad Wilson, the President of the Senate, Stuart Adams, personally running legislation, and we have legislation, but what does that tell us about the potential money that's going to come later in the session? that they're going to have a ton of support. It's highly unusual how many bills the speaker and the president are running together, and uh, the success rate clearly is really high when your top leader <laughs> is saying yeah. this is our priority. We've also been told that they are lining up serious amounts of funding, both um, for preservation of the lake and how we do that, yeah. as well as, again, studies. And, and this is something that isn't sexy legislation, but I think becomes more and more critical because those studies build the models that provide the policy for how much we're going to pay. Mm -hmm. Glenn, just one final thing on this too, because it was interesting. People have been talking, even on the Hill, about just pumping seawater mm -hmm. from the ocean to the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. That hit a couple hurdles in terms of the realities of cost and energy, right. et cetera, this week. Yeah, that, that's the thing. You take a look at what it's going to cost, the environmental impact it's going to have, and then people start to wonder. I mean, when you first think about it, it seems so outlandish to begin with anyway. But when you really break it down, it really raises a lot of questions as to, is this really the right approach to take? So not speaking to that bill, but I am gonna go out on a limb here and say the big idea and turning it upside down is absolutely needed as we look at, yeah. at, at yeah. next generation of water. Okay, maybe this one, one last water one here, Lindsay. A new potential state crustacean. It's water related, right. right? The brine shrimp represented Rosemary Lesser. Listen, we always need a state crustacean. Um, I grew up in Maine. I'm from the East Coast. Um, lobster has my heart, but I'm here in Utah now. I will support a crustacean. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's connected There's, to the Great Salt Lake, which is yeah. so significant. There's a really cool story behind that bill, though. We actually did it during mm -hmm. the week in one of our newscasts, and that is a group of middle school students behind this bill. They started it out with a petition. Uh, to get this done, and they pushed it all the way through to the legislature to help back this bill. We actually caught up with the teacher who kind of, you know, oversaw the process. But it's just 
pretty amazing how young students had this idea, got behind it, and helped get it to where it is today. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love when people engage in this way, yeah. particularly the youth. Right. All right, uh, speaking about engagement, Mara, we have a couple interesting bills about elections and voting. Uh, for, for the sake of the, the, the start here, Utah has two ways to get on the ballot. You can go through the caucus convention system, you can get signatures. Right. Those are the two ways to get on the ballot in Utah. And we don't really have a bill that's taking down that what we call Senate Bill 54 that set that, but we do have pieces of legislation impacting it. Talk about a couple those when it comes to signatures and what this may sort of show might be coming later through these parties. You know, there's several of them. The one I'll focus on is I think the one that's getting the most traction right now. And it's about setting new standards for how how many signatures you would need to gather to get on. Now, be clear, this is state, Senate, statewide. Mm -hmm. so this is all the state races. Um, and it would increase either to 3% or the default measure. But this had some movement right at the end and they went with larger than which means uh, they're still requiring a lot. Here's what we're all watching, though. Many of us have heard uh, that, as you suggested, count my vote was Senate Bill, uh, counter to Senate Bill 54. There's been an argument, particularly with the Republicans, about whether you should allow signature gathering as a means to the ballot or whether we should go back to our old caucus convention system. Uh, what we're hearing is that many of these bills might be precursors to the legislature taking a pretty big go at not allowing the signature path. Um, so that's really what we're watching for. The current bills are just sort of messing with the amount that you would need. We have actually a couple of bills that would decrease the amount of signatures you need. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to be getting the traction that sort of increasing the amount But is. to Mara's point on that specific bill, I don't know that it would impact the signature numbers at this very point, but what I'm sort of told is that as Utah's population grows, those larger than numbers will make the signature, the number of signatures you have to get go up because it will be the number that's greater, either the 3% or the current rates that we have right now, the current number of signatures. And so we know Utah's population is going to grow. So tomorrow's point is this chipping away at the number of signatures you have to get in an effort to make that path to the ballot harder. Yeah, implemented today, it would impact three of the four congressional mm -hmm. districts and a handful of state legislature races. So very low impact right now but we all know the projections of population growth here in the state of Utah and as you point out that's when it would start to have an impact uh, some of the other bills that you're talking about lowering a lot of that is this idea between the big city and the rural parts of Utah is it fair that smaller districts have to get the same amount of signatures that the larger more dense population districts yeah. do and a lot so, of it centers around that. Yeah, so this is Representative Christine Watkins from Carbon County. This is what she is talking about right. and the, these less populated parts of the state of Utah, keeping that same number of signature requirement might not be fair for those counties, but those are, that's not quite getting the traction so far. It's not getting the traction. It's, an, it's, a, it's a real notion for anyone who has signature gathered and you're living a mile yeah. between homes as opposed to right mm -hmm. next door. Mm -hmm. It's quite an effort. Yeah. A couple more things on elections. Glenn, uh, we have an interesting uh, bill uh, getting rid of the pilot project on ranked choice voting. Yeah. Uh, talk about that because we only have a couple places that were experimenting right. under that pilot to begin with. A, a few cities were, a lot of the other cities were resisting it anyway. Sherry Swenson in Salt Lake County yeah. would be an example of that. I'm not sure uh, what the new clerk, what her yeah. take is on it. I haven't talked to her about that. But there were just a couple cities using it. There's this group behind it, ranked choice voting, obviously, that's really pushing hard for it. And there's some talk that 
especially we've seen it put to use in conventions at well, as well, where people do like it, where their vote, if it doesn't count for one person, it can go to the next person. Another example of that would be the 2020 governor's race, where we had four Republican candidates in the uh, primary. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are saying they would have liked to seen ranked choice voting put in there, but this clearly an effort to move in the opposite direction. This is an interesting arc because a few years ago, who brought this to bear really was mainstream Republicans. Um, we see in studies that cities particularly, that we're not considering this for state races, but city issues where they're nonpartisan, once people get used to it, yeah. they usually report that they quite like it. Uh, but since then, since that was sort of popularized about a year and a half ago, sort of those who would be considered to the right more conservative have not been in favor of ranked choice voting. Uh, the notion behind it is that there are more profiles, essentially, mm -hmm. who you could vote for and bigger strategies. It is confusing when you start, but sort of once you click in, it, it, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting exercise as a voter. Mm -hmm. a just a couple more things on this. Lindsay, two more bills to talk about really quickly. Uh, Representative Mike Schultz has a bill calling for an automatic audit of elections every two years. I want to talk about that. And, uh, and uh, Ken Ivory has a bill uh, calling on Congress to work with all other states to put term limits on members of Congress. Yeah, well, let me speak to the elections bill because I have done a significant amount of reporting on Utah's mm -hmm. elections, but Utah already does four audits. Uh, we do the one before we start elections where we audit the machines to make sure they're counting correctly. We audit the signatures uh, to make sure that they're matching what's on file and that they're, they've been correctly identified as, as a voter. Uh, we audit the results, the tabulations after the elections to make sure, and we also audit the voter rolls. So we audit that uh, statewide voter database to make mm -hmm. sure that uh, that is as clean as it can be because that's really what sends out all our mail-in ballots and if that's not clean then people are getting ballots who um, shouldn't have a ballot and it, it can lead to problems. Um, so you saw this push from conservative Republicans I think when Trump was in office just kind of this distrust around elections and so I think this is kind of stemming from that despite the fact that um, uh, Representative Schultz disagrees with that. He says that this isn't about Trump, this isn't about that. Uh, it's about election security in his mind. So taking him at his word at that. But you did see this push from uh, more conservatives on this, this distrust in elections calling for more audits. And so we're just sort of seeing the ramifications of that play out now. Okay, uh, one, one more uh, connected to this, uh, Mara. It's, uh, this is an interesting one, but we'll bring it up because this has a high likelihood of being on our ballots in the, this next general election. Uh, House Joint Resolution 10, this is again, Representative Brad, Speaker of the House Brad Wilson, President of the Senate Stuart Adams, would require counties to hold elections for county sheriffs every four years. This sort of cementing this process. That's right, what's interesting, as you said, is that this is a constitutional. So what would happen if this passes is that we would all vote on mm -hmm. this issue. So the issue is all 29 counties right now elect their sheriffs, but that's at the discretion of the county councils and I, they could change it uh, and make it an appointed position. We've long had conversations lately about particularly district attorneys and uh, mm. sheriffs about whether this is, should be an elected uh, position or whether this should be appointed based on work experience and, and normal protocols for appointing. It's noted, though, that it's the, the Speaker of the Senate, um, and, and I think it caught our eye because it's a little curious. Uh, this is a, a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. I mean, this would sort of place sheriffs in Utah's constitution. 
I wonder if it's needed. Um, and I will be very curious to following the discussion because assuredly with those sponsors, it will pass. Mm -hmm. And there's always this scrutiny as well as why are sheriffs and district attorneys running under partisan right. uh, requirements. Yeah. You take a look at those two positions and you would think that should have nothing to do with it. Uh, but this obviously putting that in the Constitution to, even though it's happening, already now to make sure it does into the future. Yeah, I want to turn to education for a moment. Uh, Lindsay, one of these interesting bills got a, a pretty good amount of airtime was whether or not uh, cell phones should be allowed in public schools. Very interesting evolution on this bill. Started out pretty strong, got a little less strong, and then ultimately killed. Yeah, I think the high-level notion is good, right? And I think a lot of people would agree that cell phones distract kids. They can be uh, detrimental, you know, in certain ways. We're seeing the social media push on uh, with minors as well, but it, it sort of brings up this really philosophical question I think you're seeing play, playing out in several issues with the state legislature this year is how much do we want the state government in between kids and families? And it, when it comes to the, uh, I should say kids and parents, when it comes to the school issue, it seems that the conservative-controlled uh, legislature uh, believes this is a local issue, believes that the school districts, you know, this is why this bill died, is because they want it on the local level. They say, you know, school districts can create this policy all day long, but the state doesn't need to be telling school districts whether or not kids can bring cell phones in class. But on an issue like the transgender medical bill that we saw, that is an issue where the state stepped in and said, we don't know if we trust all this, the the research on this and we think it might be dangerous, so we're gonna mm. uh, give you some guardrails there. And so it's just bringing up sort of this interesting, and I know those are apples to oranges, but this this philosophical question of how much do we want the state in between uh, you know, kids and parents, I think is something we're but seeing But I wanna over underline over. that issue because more than I have seen ever in the last two years, this notion of a conservative uh, uh, electorate and a conservative legislative body and the role of government, we seem to be redefining that. We are pretty aggressive about our um, the legislature speaking to other subservient um, uh, political systems, whether that's the districts, whether that's municipalities, and, and it's bringing up a, an academic, perhaps, but an interesting conversation about what is government overreach, um, and is I, I wouldn't have thought it was possible to have that in a paradigm of conservatism, but I think we may want to look at that. Well, that's the interesting thing about a, what you see as a great political narrative is it can suit you well on one issue, and then it yeah. doesn't suit you well at all. Right. And in my next. conversations with Senate leadership, I should add that they say that w when it comes to specifically the social media aspect, I know we may get to this in a minute, but this bill to require parental consent for, for teens signing up for social media, they say that parents are desperate for these tools because they can't help their kids or control their kids when it comes to social media they don't have the tools necessary so this is where the state wants to step in and say we will give you those tools okay let's talk about that bill for a second uh, Glenn this is Senator Mike McKell uh, Senate bill 152 it's called social media regulation amendments yeah. and what's interesting here is it requires social media companies because there are a couple of key points here that I think we just have to get to, to this very big question to obtain consent from a parent or guardian before the minors maintain or open an account also prohibits direct messaging to certain accounts and hides a minor's access to search results, blocking ads, limiting hours of use. Yeah, that's that's taking a big step toward regulating social media in our state. I think there is a need and a want from parents to be able to address this in some way. This bill, one thing would be is 
enforcement. That's a big part of the question. How do you actually enforce that? Uh, social media mm -hmm. platforms, some of them anyway, do require you to be a certain age, but all you have to do is put in a fake birth date and then you're on. So they're trying to, to take it at that. You might remember Senator McHale ran a bill trying to regulate social media a couple of years ago. It passed and the governor vetoed it. Um, so we've seen the governor come on board with this as well. He's been very strong. This is an issue I think we all take a step back from and say, the governor, this legislature, most parents see the issue, right? We all agree we're stressed about social media's impact, mm -hmm. particularly on young women. We're seeing more and more studies. Are these bills the route to get to what we want to? Um, or Because again, there's consensus. The governor has been really outspoken right. about this. Mm. But I have never seen such proactive, sort of direct to corporate, mm. direct to family intervention by the state as we're seeing in many thematic elite yeah. structured bills this year. Well, and one of our representatives from Utah, Chris Stewart, is running a bill right. at the federal level as well, and his would flat out ban anyone under the age of 16 from having access to social media platforms. He also wants to put in some recourse for that for states and parents to be able to sue these companies, go after them if they do not uphold their part of it as well. And mm -hmm. there is a bill locally to do that same thing. Representative Jordan Tusher is running a, a, a stricter bill than Senator Mike McKell. Uh, Tusher's bill would prohibit at 16 uh, anyone from uh, using social media before the age of 16. McKell's bill requires those social media uh, companies to get consent from parents in order for teens to mm -hmm. use social media. So you are, to Mara's point, seeing two different strategies on how do we want to approach uh, the issue of we know that social media is having some negative impact on our kids. And on emerging issues like technology, right? We don't have canons of law here. but And so I, th I think that there's some sophistication to this, but you have to look, as Glenn said, at efficacy and, um, and enforceability on mm -hmm. these. So maybe we do put these out there to disrupt and, and settle law. That's, I think, a legit mm -hmm. strategy for legislation. But the chances of it being effective are questionable. Okay, we're watching this closely. It's so interesting to see how many people are engaging on this one. Thank you for the great conversation this evening. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.